Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a toxophilic part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted via satellite uplink from the shadow of the Mayan volcano in the Philippines. Joining me today are Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And Bill Sproul. Hey. This time on the program, we have two guests. Joining us today for the first time, we have Jonathan Downey. Hi there. Hey, welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for visiting with us. Uh, clearly, you don't actually listen to the podcast, or you'd know better than to join us. Well, it's my poison of choice. <laughs> Also joining us again is returning fan favorite, Gabe Olson. Welcome back, Gabe. Hello there. Uh, clearly, you have no sense of self-preservation. <laughs> I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Notice that Trey, Trey said fan singular. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. I've got three language-related items. Two of them are true and one is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Today's topic is verbing weirds language. Item number one. In the Australian Ewijin languages, kinship terms are verbs, not nouns. Thus, John uncles marry. Item number two. In the African Budu Ndaka languages, the default tense for verbs in the morning is the future tense. In the evening, it's the past tense. Item number three. In the Papua New Guinean language, kalam, the word for massage, is nine verbs stacked together. Literally, strike, rub, hold, come, ascend, hold, come, descend, do. All right, who wants to go first? I'll go ahead, if sorry. All right. I'm going to start with the first one in the Australian Ewijin languages, kinship terms. First of all, I'm going to go ahead and say this one's false because I actually don't think this Ewijin language exists at all. And frankly, I'm not sure even Australia exists. Sounds pretty made up. <laughs> so that one's obviously false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the second one, the default tense for verbs in the morning is the future tense, and in the evening it's the past tense. This one sounds, sounds quite logical. Uh, the one thing you are missing from this is that actually at lunchtime, they speak only in the present tense. Just a little correction there. So this one is true. And then a third one also is true because it sounds good, pretty much. So yeah, first one false, second two true. Okay, who wants to go next? The first one, I am not even going to attempt to pronounce that language, but that kind of makes sense, given that the Bible has so many begats, which probably literally means sonned or daughtered, so John Uncles Mary kind of makes some sort of weird sense. The African one, the default tense of my verbs first thing in the morning is for them not to be verbs, because there's no action going on first thing in the morning. Um, <laughs> that sounds too Trey Jones-ish to possibly be true, but the third one is confusing me because the third one actually sounds a bit like I came I saw I conquered it's like the masters saying I came I gave you pain I got paid for it so (laughs) (laughs) unless they have very few masters who are all linguists who all like to spend far too long explaining simple concepts that has to be false which makes the middle one true by default so I'm going for three is false because only linguists could come up with that all right Keith or Bill Well, I'd be happy to go next. I think Jonathan is right, but for the wrong reason. But I'll come to that in a second. So the Yuaijin languages, it's true that everything is a verb. All the kinship terms are verbs. But it's also true that all the words in these languages are verbs. So we have the paraphrase, John uncles Mary. I think the closest we could get to that in English, the Yuaijin equivalent would be something like Johnning uncles marrying. Uh, anyway, so but that one is true, although it's only partially true. The second one about the default tenses is also true, but it's only true on even-numbered days. Um, the odd-numbered day system is poorly understood. But again, it's partially true, so I'm going to go with that one as true. 
the compound word for massage, strike, rub, hold, come, ascend, hold, come, descend, do. Is that what you said? Yep. Okay. Anybody would notice that that comes out to an odd number and that violates verbal valence symmetry. So a compound like that has to have an even number of verbal roots. So that one must be false. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bill, you want to set them all straight? Oh, yeah. <laughs> For the idea that the Australian language Uwajan has verbal kinship terms, I think that one's true because it sounds like the kind of thing a language would do and also the kind of thing that many locations would pass laws against. Um, the number two sounds a bit weird. I'm going to put that one in park for a minute till I get back to it. Number three sounds perfectly possible for two reasons. One is serial verb languages do this kind of thing. Number two, formal semanticists do this kind of thing. As far as I know, this is like a group of formal semanticists that were exiled to New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> to get them out of the undergrad logic survey because they wanted to actually have the class make. So I'm really suspicious of this idea of default tense in the morning being one thing and default tense in the evening being something else. I'm going to I'm going to say that's the false one. OK, let's see. I think we had a lot of votes for number three. That one is, in fact, true. No way. Yes, the word for massage is nine verbs stacked together. Oh, the short verbs, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I have the gloss. Unfortunately, there aren't enough vowels in it. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, in the gloss? I do. It's put wuk de aptan de yak, And I think that's the infinitive. I'm sure that last verb needs some inflection. Yeah, because it's asymmetrical this way. <laughs> It, it kind of sounds like uh, the verb for teaching someone singing by making them pronounce lots of phonemes back to back. <laughs> <laughs> Number one is also true uh, with the kinship terms as verbs. So, in fact, John does Uncle Mary. Somebody mentioned there being a law against that. Uh, yeah, it does sound vaguely dirty in English, doesn't it? The false one is, in fact, number two, and Bill is the only one who got it right. So there is no language with default tense in the morning and default tense in the evening that is somehow different from other tenses. Are you sure? I did try to Google to see if something like that existed, <laughs> just in case. So we know now if it makes sense, Trey made it up. If it doesn't make sense, the grammatical people and the syntacticians made it up. That, that could be. <laughs> that is a recurring theme that I'm somehow evil and tricky, and this game is actually about figuring out what I would do, not actually figuring out what's true. None of those are my intent. Anyway, we have the scores now. So Bill has pulled out among the guessers into first place with two correct answers. Commanding lead. Oh, not so much, because I also have two, because a bunch of you got it wrong this time. <laughs> Our guests have sunk to a new low of one out of four, <laughs> which is really bad considering there have only been three times since we started getting the score. <laughs> Good job, guys. All right. So at least Keith knows he's not going to be last for a while now. That's why we have guests. <laughs> That's true. They don't have as much expertise in figuring out my personal cleverness. <laughs> Any other complaints or comments before we move along? Next time, can you can I highlight the right answer for the guests so that we <laughs> won't lose? <laughs> we tried that before. It didn't actually help. <laughs> See, I, guests I, I, were I, just as random that way. <laughs> the thing is, is that I don't know about Gabe, but I have so little like proper, you know, useless linguistics training that I can't even write an IPA. So my only training is in stuff that people will actually pay for, which puts me at a disadvantage in this game. <laughs> 
you know, if you want to be in the Olympics, you got to do a bunch of useless physical training that isn't really useful in real life. And if you want to win at Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics, you need to spend several years in the classroom trying not to fall asleep during a linguistics lecture. So anyway, before we go to our commercial break, we have to say goodbye to Jonathan, who apparently has to run off and translate something and get paid and all that stuff. So thanks for joining us, Jonathan. It's interpret and see you later. <laughs> see you later. Thanks for being with us. And we'll be back with some language news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Functionalists. They can't explain anything without your help. And we're back. Well, I thought it wasn't possible to come up with anything new to say about English, but academics are always able to surprise us. And here's today's surprise in the news. Professor Jan Terje Farland of the University of Oslo has discovered that English is not a West Germanic language that was influenced by Vikings. Instead, it's a Viking language that replaced Old English when the Vikings vanquished the tribes of Merry Old Angle Land a few centuries ago. What do you guys think? Is this theory about English going to have staying power like, you know, Grimm's Law? Or is it going to be more like that one theory by that one guy who uh, <laughs> uh, who was that anyway? I can't remember his name. Anyway, what do you think? I can't decide whether the most important thing here is that I should be able to get my claim that English is a romance language published because it's less outlandish than what this guy's claiming. Or maybe the problem is I can't get it published because it isn't outlandish enough. Uh, so I'm, I'm torn. Well, just tell us the basis of your claim that English is a romance <laughs> language and we'll decide if it's outlandish or not. Well, it's definitely outlandish. The question is, is it not outlandish enough or too outlandish? <laughs> Can't decide. No, you look at, you study French and you're like, this is English, just with bad grammar. There you go. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. Or English is French with bad grammar. Also right. possible, right? So right. the basis for this claim seems to be not vocabulary, which is what would give you that idea about French and English, but rather, I was a little unclear, but it seems to be a sort of construction types, idiom type things. Ooh, they're all the same. What do you think? Is that a good justification for grouping languages? Well, one of the things I thought was kind of bizarre about the claim was that the researchers are focusing on one view of the underlying word order of Scandinavian language versus English. So you get this claim that the underlying word order in Old English and German is SOV, and Old English, that was the most common word order. And then Scandinavian languages, modern ones, are SVO. What it's ignoring is the entire period in the history of English where you frequently had a verb in the middle. Modern German is, in main clauses, it's usually verb second. So talking about German as if it's got the verb locked into final position is kind of iffy because the finite verb in a main clause frequently isn't in second position. And in English, you have plenty of examples up to the present of things other than the subject occurring before the verb. So down the chimney sprang St. Nicholas, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> he was taking certain kinds of theoretical models and seemed to be taking them in the strongest possible way in order to make his point. On the other hand, I found the argument kind of strangely relaxing because <laughs> it's been a long yes. time since the Norwegians tried to conquer something. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been worrying because they're good at that, you know? And so it's like, 
when's the shoe gonna drop? Now it's kind of language history, and I'm sort of cool with that, frankly. They're not gonna grab monasteries. They're just going to argue that their texts should be viewed as proto-Norwegian now, maybe, or something. Compared to a Viking attack or loot fisk, that's that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I think Bill's got a point about the new modern Vikings, which aren't quite as Viking as the old Vikings, but need to take over something. (laughs) I think in general, that any kind of major claim to reclassify a well-established language like English, or even the ones that are well-established isolates like Basque, should not be done by someone who's native to the culture or language they're trying to move into, right? Because it gives this problem of what Bill was saying, you know, it's like they're claiming it for themselves as opposed to if a Japanese scholar said English is really a Scandinavian language, it wouldn't be for the glory of Japan to make that claim. Mm -hmm. No self-interest involved. Yeah. So I think this gives more support for my claim that English is a romance language since I'm a native speaker of English and we're not classified as a romance language. I'm going to stick with this. Well, one (laughs) one other note on that. The whole argument is kind of essentialist, right? I mean, there are similarities and differences between English and Scandinavian languages, between English and West Germanic languages or other West Germanic languages, etc. And so the argument boils down to a kind of essentialism. Which of the resemblances are the true essential ones and which ones are accidental? He could be looking at the behavior of the language itself. And so if you look at how English has affected other languages, where it shows up and takes all their stuff and then burns things down. (laughs) Okay. And you look at something like Ailes Saga, where noted poet and psychopath A.S. Scalagrimson (laughs) is engaging in his version of diplomatic relations with people who would rather him not engage. There are strong similarities. (laughs) So basically what you're saying is the Viking breeds true is an argument to be made, at least. But that would be essentialist. Mm. Actually, to come back to Trey's claim that English is a romance language, there's a better argument for making that claim. And this scholar has made the argument for you. So he says that if Vikings conquer England, or whatever they called it in those days, then their language will take over, right? <laughs> That's Then that implies that when the Normans came along later, and they were, of course, just Vikings, when they came along and conquered England later on, their language would have taken over. And so English must be, what we speak today as English must actually be medieval French, or pre-medieval French. Well, what, what period is that, Bill? <laughs> we don't use Dark Ages anymore. <laughs> oh, it's the... the <laughs> it's all medieval. <laughs> okay, so it's medieval French, which replaced whatever Viking language was being spoken in England at the time. You're right, you're right. <laughs> I don't know, though. I think that maybe that's too logical and not outlandish enough, so <laughs> no one's going to listen. Another point I'd like to make about this is coming back to something else Bill said. You know, there is this theory in formal syntax that German is an OV language, that it's a verb final language. But I don't blame that on syntacticians. It's clearly not true, but the fact that people make the claim is not the fault of syntacticians. It's the fault of Mark Twain, and the syntacticians picked <laughs> it up from him. I'm sure you're familiar with the Mark Twain quote. He said something like, the German dives underwater at the beginning of the paragraph and comes up at the end with the verb in his mouth, yep. something like that. And uh, that just got reified into linguistics as a claim that German is verb final, but it's it's not. Hmm. Well, the other view is German is verb final 
in all clauses, but the end of the clause in some clauses is in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of right dislocation going on. That could be. It's all von Riemann syntax. <laughs> Gabe, did you want to jump in and say anything? Or Well, I admit that uh, most of it was uh, over my head quite a bit, but uh, I have to say one thing I respect about it is it seems to be going on the um, same sort of way that I write papers and basically just on gut feelings and less on evidence. <laughs> because if something feels right, then I think the evidence is less important. And and just like he says in the paper, he says, Farland believes it's no coincidence that Scandinavians, especially Norwegians, learn English relatively easy. It feels right. And that's good enough for me, too. And, and honestly, I think sometimes too much research based on evidence is it's tedious. It's, it's really hard, frankly. And it leads to boring results. Like Trey was saying, it's not sometimes too much evidence. It, it's not outlandish enough to, to be published. So, yeah. Well, there's a lot of truth to what you say. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's all the insights we can gain from this piece of scholarship. And so let's move on to our next discussion topic. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's program is brought to you by the people for the ethical treatment of data. We believe that data should not be ignored or, much worse, examined in detail without its consent. Instead, all data should be massaged, respected, and sat on a pretty pedestal above the madding crowds of experimental researchers and methods geeks. Join today and you get a free copy of the latest book in cultural translation and post-structuralism, PETD, because all data deserves good treatment. Welcome back. As part of our ongoing service to the wider linguistic discourse, and also as per our legally stipulated community service requirement due to that regrettable incident involving Lady Fantod in the Antarctic lacrosse team, <laughs> we are always on the lookout for publications perniciously promulgating false claims about language. This month, our steely gaze has been drawn to the Atlantic Wire, which has fashioned what purports to be a list of the worst words of 2012. While we would note positively that they have shown some awareness of linguistic terminology, they do mention several portmanteaux, we should also recognize that they are perpetuating the horrors of prescriptivism, and also that some of their words are the wrong ones, and they left some out. <laughs> So I put it to the panel of Specgram justiciers. Do we let them off with a sternly worded memo, or do we go full pull you on them? <laughs> Bill, I think instead of a memo, I think we should just talk about them. Gabe, what do you think? Well, actually, uh, Bill, you kind of segued nicely uh, into my point when you talked about the worst kind of prescriptivism, because, that, of course, that's one thing you know we all learn when we start doing linguistics, you know, prescriptivism bad, descriptivism good, you know, and I I think that we don't go far enough, though, at the moment. And I'm kind of promoting a new philosophy in linguistics that I'm calling radical descriptivism. And it basically goes that if someone uses a word, any word, no matter how made up it sounds or however incorrectly it's used, it should be added to the dictionary immediately, right then and there. Uh, it's still a work in progress, but that's so far for my radical descriptivism. So I don't think building any word lists of the worst words is going to work well with that. And all those kind of lists should be punished immediately. So wait, I'm sorry, are you suggesting that radical descriptivism is a good idea or a bad idea? Oh, radical descriptivism the way we sh is the way we should move. That yes, we should accept any word, no matter how novel, no matter how ghastly it is, immediately into the dictionary. <laughs> okay, thanks. Sorry, I was just a little unclear on the, um, the point. It's possible I was being pretty unclear at the same time, too. So. <laughs> 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 
Hmm. I think I disagree because while some of these aren't necessarily bad words, so like one of my favorites was butt chugging, which is an alcohol enema. It's descriptive and it's amusing as a word. Problem is that the fact that there are such debauched practices and entities out there as butt chugging and hashtags and hipsters and selfies and meggings, and these are reified into the lexicon, is a sure sign of the decline of our civilization. I know every generation says that, but I think I really mean it this time. You have to be over like 40 to say that, right? <laughs> well, I qualify. <laughs> so, Trey, is this kind of like a question of life imitating art or art imitating life, where if we propagate these words, then they're just going to kind of encourage people to keep doing the practices that these words are naming? So, I'm not really thinking about it encouraging or not encouraging or putting these in the dictionary, whether that matters or not, but just the fact that someone decided to give themselves an alcohol enema <laughs> and then thought it was such a good idea they needed a term for it, right? <laughs> So I'm willing to accept that in a given subculture, they're going to need terms for important practices. The fact that this became a sufficiently important practice to need a term. <laughs> that's the problem. That's clearly a problem. <laughs> so Trey, you just read some of these. Maybe we could just mention to our <laughs> listeners what some of the words that made the list were. So let's see. Baby bump, uh, brogrammer, uh, disrupt used as a as a verb, but also as a noun. It's particularly, yeah. Uh, what else? Epic. This person objects to epic, which I guess is just overused. Yes. What are the other ones that struck you? Uh, I was a little disappointed that actually was on the list. We've talked about this before, I think, but understanding that actually and apparently are incipient evidentials in English mm -hmm. is much more interesting, actually. Literally. <laughs> yeah, literally was one that I happen to agree with, that even though I promote radical descriptivism, I have a hard time. <laughs> I have a very hard time with literally. I hear it all the time, and I have to admit that one kind of drives me crazy. So I had to agree with the article on that one. <laughs> yeah. I also have to give the article some credit for recognizing that artisanal should be exterminated <laughs> from all advertising materials. Oh. But the other ones. I can see Gabe's point on all of the items here except the ones that I disapprove of. <laughs> I was thinking about the word literally the other day because I found like as a parent, I've got, I have a one-year-old daughter. See, I, I reserve the right to use the word literally when I say something like, she was so excited, she literally peed her pants because <laughs> I'm not misusing the word. <laughs> Very likely she did. And Trey, as for the term that so horrified you, I would point out that <laughs> what we have here is still better than a potential situation where the word not only existed, but was monomorphemic. <laughs> that would be even worse. <laughs> At least they felt like they had to put it together out of hearts. <laughs> That one actually reminded me of my favorite word that I learned of this last year, although those of you who actually like watch TV and read the newspaper may have heard it years ago. But my favorite word is butt dialing. Turns out that something like 60% of calls to 911 are the result of people's cell phones in their back pocket. Right. <laughs> like pocket dialing. <laughs> did, you say, did you say pocket dialing? That's I'd never heard butt dialing. I had definitely. Oh, really? Okay. I had definitely oh, heard yeah. pocket dialing. That's because so. you're Canadian oh. and you guys are nice. I know. I guess like, butt <laughs> dialing is just too crude for the average Canadian. Yeah. I had never heard butt chugging either. So. <laughs> I actually hadn't heard the term, but as soon as I saw it, I knew what it was because I'd heard about the practice of that it describes. Yeah, I, I did see the practice on the movie Jackass. So as soon as I saw the term, I was like, oh, yeah. A very descriptive term. You don't need to, too much explanation. <laughs> so I have to give it that. At least you hear 
it once, you know exactly what it's saying. So I actually have to disagree with Bill on artisanal as it applies to food. I think that is, as a sociolinguistic phenomenon, it's incredibly useful. So a lot of these, I think, are good in terms of in-group, out-group identification. Mm-hmm. But in particular, artisanal as applied to things like cheeses and other kinds of gourmet food means that it's going to give you hippie street cred, it's going to cost too much, and it's not really going to be any better. That's a, a very, very useful label, I think. It's definitely a sociolinguistic marker kind of thing. Yeah, it's definitely all about in-group, right? But in particular, <laughs> that you're going to overpay for whatever is labeled as such. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so that's I think that's actually useful. It's kind of the linguistic equivalent of expensive bottled water. Right, exactly. Mm. I think that's good. One of them that got me is it made a dig at Inbox Zero, and that hurt a little bit, because I think that's a perfectly fine way for, say, a computational linguist with a touch of OCD to keep his email organized and his to-do list prioritized. I don't see anything wrong with Inbox Zero. <laughs> well, we all have our weaknesses. <laughs> so some of the things that weren't on the list, does anybody have any, any ones that were um, not on the list that bugged them? I will go first. I get a little crotchety over some internet slang. I'm tired of people who say they get it right in the feels or that somebody's chopping onions because they get emotional. Oh, God. I dislike it when uh, the youngins say that they are forever alone because they can't get a date. If you're in high school, you can't be forever anything. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't decide about, um, so there's a phrasing because plus NP as a reason for something. So Yes, because aliens. Yeah, exactly. It's useful and it can be kind of clever and it's very compact, but it is just so, so wrong. I don't know. (laughs) And the one that gets me the most, which over the course of 2012, I have finally given up on is people using less when they should be using fewer. (laughs) And the mass noun, count noun distinction in English is just gone for some people. And I hate it. We didn't need it. To see such violence done to our lovely language, it gets me right in the feels. (laughs) (laughs) It's got onions over there. Yeah. It's hard. (laughs) I think we ought to reserve linguistic condemnation to groups in power positions. Uh, And so I feel perfectly justified in making scathing commentaries about the speech of bureaucrats. But I try to confine it to that. So visioning. Yes, visioning should that. that, No, no. (laughs) Just no. Just no. (laughs) What about uh, other people in power? So Keith mentioned disruptive before, and that's one that since I work in software, I am really tired of hearing. Oh, yes. Everything is a disruptive technology. Yes. And it seems like everybody just wants to get in, make their big wads of cash by destroying everything and running off into the sunset with their big wads of cash, which actually sounds nice, but because it involves big (laughs) wads of cash. That is usually juxtaposed with some comment about the Chinese word for emergency, also meaning opportunity. And that always comes from a speaker that doesn't know that's false. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But it's part of their uh, the way that they're going to impactfully leverage their visioning yes. of the yes. opportunity. Yes. And whatever they're doing will allow you to visually see things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're just getting cranky. Which actually makes me worry because I keep thinking, what if how I'm seeing things is not actually visual and I just didn't know that? <laughs> 
okay, this isn't linguistics, but I think that really happens. Because <laughs> uh, I'm a typography nerd, and I am shocked at the things that other people can't see. And it's like, do you not have a visual system? Is there no graphical filter at all? Do the words just turn into words in your head, like someone's whispering in your ear, and you can't see that the fonts are the wrong size, and the kerning is bad, and the weight of the... Ah, oh, it just drives me nuts. Well, well I meant something a little different. What if you had partitioned synesthesia? <laughs> So it's like vision is bleeding over into hearing, but at the same time, hearing is bleeding over into vision so that they never actually get mixed. How would you know? That's deep. <laughs> Maybe we all have partition synesthesia, or at least most people do. Hmm. That was your sophomore moment brought to you by Spectrum. <laughs> Hard to know where to go with that, Bill. <laughs> I think you could make an argument on information theory grounds of the bandwidth involved. Mm -hmm. Yes, you probably could, because information theory will let you get away with an awful lot. <laughs> Entropy. Woohoo! Woohoo! And surprising. <laughs> I think maybe that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult today. Thanks to our guest, Gabe Olson, for hanging out with us this time. Join us next time when we attempt to do the entire show in center-embedded Klingon. <laughs> I was a language assistant in a lycée in France for nine months. And for some reason, all they ever wanted me to teach them was Glaswegian insults. So there are now northern French people going around calling their teachers bohids. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of Glaswegian for Chomskyan. It's, it's, it's about the right level. Uh, Bill's not right every week. You just ask the wrong question sometimes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, just don't say anything about hermeneutics, otherwise I'm in trouble. Ah, uh, the curse of the semicolon. Ah, uh, time travel. So amazing. My joke at the moment, which I still get in trouble for, is what's the difference between being a parent of a young baby and working with academics? What? The baby smells better. <laughs> <laughs> and the second difference is a baby's only full of poop once a day. That was all spadoing, spadoing, boing, boing, spadoing. We're not expected to pronounce the names of any of these languages, are we? No. Good. I am. <laughs> I'm also in charge of editing, so if it takes three tries, it takes three tries. <laughs> and so let's move on to our next discussion topic. But first, a word from our sponsor. Oh, sorry. But first, a word from our sponsor. Mine sounded better. I'll use that. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Let me try again. But first, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> But isn't the dream of every conlanger to have your language so well known that people type in a novel on a, on a manual typewriter using its own syllabary? Okay, well, I have like zero opinions about any of this, so I'm not going first either. They are perpetuating the horrors of descriptivism. It should have been prescriptivism. So I'm gonna <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>